0: We're going to be talking a lot about the Big Book of AA, <coughs> and uh, if you've never heard it, there's a, a wonderful, wonderful tape that Bill Wilson did about uh, how the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous was written, and it's very wonderful and very funny. He uh, had heard that some people were starting to iconize the book, sort of uh, hold it sort of up as a holy book and uh, and take it sort of in, in really uh, nitpickingly literal, and he tells a story about the writing of the book, which is a historical story. I mean, it's these guys who were trying to get paid. I mean, they basically were trying to make money. They were uh, they they were selling stock certificates in a, a corporation that wasn't incorporated. Um, and they kept, like, writing a, a chapter and showing it to people and saying, can we have the money? And they'd say no. And they'd write another chapter. It was a, a riot. Uh, and one of the descriptions, if you get a chance an AA comes of age, there's a wonderful, description, probably my favorite description, of Bill sitting down and writing Chapter 5. They had written the first four chapters, and then he got together with a bunch of guys, and there was no formal six-step program that was like on a sheet that they had been using. He sat down with a group of guys, and they boiled down what they had been doing in the Oxford group to basically six steps, and they said to Bill, you're going to have to write this thing now. I mean, the time has come. You're going to have to write how it works so he went off to actually codify the thing and write it. And this is just, it's so perfectly AA. After he finishes it, one of his guys comes over with a new guy with 90 days. And Bill is, of course, flipping out. He's written this thing. He wrote the 12 steps. And he shows it to them, and they start picking it apart. The new guy's going, eh, I don't know. <laughs> and it's just such perfect AA that, it, you know, this guy with 90 days is busting his chops about the first draft of Chapter 5. So I love that. And I, I try to remember that anytime I start to iconize the book because um, it's, it's not a good idea. I had uh, sponsored a guy some years ago. There was this guy, very powerful, very wealthy guy, um, was sent to a rehab by the company that he worked for, worth many, many millions of dollars, and uh, up in the Oregon area, and he called his brother and he said, look, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I've got to do it. His brother was a member of AA. He said, uh, I heard a tape of this guy named Scott Redman, and I'm telling you that this guy, can, this guy can get me sober. This guy can do it. I heard this tape. I don't know how I'm going to find him. I don't know where he is, but I've got to find a way to get to this guy, and I'm telling you everything's going to be okay. And the guy on the phone said... Um, you're a moron scott redmond's been my sponsor for 10 years you've eaten dinner with him 20 times uh you stood next to him at my wedding you're a schmuck you have the mind of a chicklet and you're an idiot and uh (laughs) didn't have a big problem getting a hold of me and you know how long i kept him sober for exactly no seconds at all and uh he started a terrible journey of drinking and he had incredible resources. He was sequestered. He signed his money away to be sequestered on a, on a private island in the Caribbean to keep him from drinking. And he stayed sober until the day he got off the island. I mean, it's just, it's, it was that story. But it was an incredible thing to watch because this was in the hands of somebody with unbelievable resources. And he'd always get it. I got it. I got it. Like he got, I got the red Scott Redmond tape, you know. He calls me one day. He says, I got it. I said, "What?" He says, "Come over." I came over. He's got one of there's about five hundred or so copies of the original big, big book, uh, the the big, big book first printing. They cost a lot of dough. There's a couple of hundred of them still around. He got one, mint condition, seven grand. He's got it. I got it. I got it. I look at it. I said, "It looks like it's never even been opened. It's 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 perfect." He says, "Yeah." I said. Oh, so you got the loser book. You you got the loser book that's been handed down from loser to loser intact for 65 years. Give me that. (laughs) Can't keep you sober. Can't keep you sober. Um, Dr. Silkworth talks about something in the doctor's opinion, which we are going to talk about right now. And uh, I talked about psychology and about therapy and about what therapy can do. And what Silkworth talks about is he says we long suspected that some form of moral psychology would be necessary. And I didn't understand what that was for a really long time. really long time because I had not caught alcoholism. I was Jewish. Jews don't drink. As you know, because the drinking might dull the pain. And... uh, you don't. You, you don't want to squander any agony opportunity that presents itself. <clears throat> In addition to the Judaism, of course, I had had the psychotherapy, I, uh, and, uh, and there was another reason I didn't have alcoholism, and it's because I uh, was a colorful, arti- uh, I was uh, an adventurous artist. My job was to go to the icy edge, peer over, come back, and report to you. I was usually too loaded to make it back from the edge, and too cooked to remember what I had seen once I got back. But that was my uh, job. So I wasn't an alcoholic. I was a artistic, Jewish therapy patient, or something. But I had not—I I didn't catch alcoholism. I caught alcoholism in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. The infection entered through my ear, and then it started infecting me, and I started inf- infecting other people. And then, once I found out what the interior of my disease was, I really. Profoundly, and I mean profoundly, truly profoundly, caught alcoholism. And um, moral psychology is uncovered, it's not uncovered, discover, and unravel, it's uncovered, discover, and apply. Uncover, discover, and apply. What was the prayer we all took this morning? Take away my difficulties, the victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. Take away my difficulties for one reason, really only one reason. Not so this can become a self-help group. I've never seen a group that was not about self-help more than Alcoholics Anonymous. We are as antithetical to the notion of self-help that you can possibly get. Take away my difficulty, so this this column of human sewage can get into some kind of, of, of position to be of some help to another human being and take a step out of self. That's the whole purpose of it. And a lot of people, you know, the recovery industry for years was sending non-alcoholics to Alcoholics Anonymous. We're, we're getting it again, especially in California, because they've decriminalized a lot of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. I got no beef with that at all. It created a lot of good 12-step opportunities for me. I don't, I, I don't, but what happened in a lot of sense and what's happened with 12-step culture that I've seen a lot is it used as a self-help as opposed to, uncover, discover and apply, apply it so I can be of some help. My father was dead. I couldn't love him. I couldn't kiss him. I couldn't show up for him. How am I going to get into some kind of position to be of help to someone who's done the same thing? How am I going to be of some help to someone who has been abusing their children? How can I do that? How am I going to? I don't know. I don't know. I would come to meetings sometimes. I wouldn't even hear a passing reference made to God, the big book of the steps. All I would hear about is issues and boundaries, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But you've got to stay sober to have an issue or a boundary. If you stay sober, you'll have an issue and a boundary. I guarantee it. But it's the not drinking part that's a moose. If it was not for the not drinking part, we'd be a much bigger organization. I guarantee it. But this not drinking thing is a a real pain in the ass. So um, sometimes I've heard people say, this is not about not drinking anymore. I want to tell you, I'm 16 years in. This is absolutely 100% about not drinking. 100%. One of the nauseating things at that first couple of meetings I went to was everything was a miracle. I'm a miracle. You're a miracle. The furniture and coffee are miracles too. Miracle. <laughs> I got a miracle for you. Um, well, the miracle <laughs> is without the central miracle in my life, which is when I want to drink, I don't. When I want to drink, I don't, makes all of the other miracles possible, the central miracle of alcoholism. It's like our, our uh, it's the beautiful mirror of our uh, uh, our service structure. If you take a look at the booklet on the, uh, the pamphlet on the 12 concepts in GSO, the rank and file, it's, it's the most bizarre corporate structure you'll ever see in your life. The trustees are the bottom of the pyramid. You can't get lower than trustee in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you can't get higher than child of God. You can't get higher. There's no loftier goal than to be a member, a rank-and-file member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm resentful at Nazis. For slaughtering Jews, it affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. <clears throat> now, resentment's no big deal. It's just the source of all spiritual illness, the great destroyer of all alcoholics. It'll cut me off from the sunlight of the spirit, drag me ass, my ass out, and kill me dead. But don't be alarmed. No big deal. Because, you see, I don't just dislike stuff. I don't just dislike stuff. I re-experience this hatred. I hate so intensely that I wake up and I I care for my hatred like a little flower. I water it. I care for it. I love my hatred. If I realize that I have forgotten to hate something, I'm shocked and dismayed of losing out on that hatred time. I have to redouble my hatred time to make up for the lost hatred time. I hate things in a way that eats my brain and my heart, turns my life black, eclipses anything good that's happening in my life, and throws me out of my own life. But relax, work a step a year, don't worry about it. You don't hear that pearl a lot anymore. I used to hear that a lot, a step a year. But I judge no man. Um, What am I going to do? I look at the list of resentments. The first thing that, that was apparent was the pre, the, the, uh, uh, that the people in this world were often quite wrong. The book never argues with us. Never argues with You're right. You've been screwed. You've been screwed. When you go someplace, the people where you've been, they call the people you're going to go to, and they go, get him. He's coming. Get that. Get him. Because early on, people talked behind my back. Then they started doing things behind my back. And then they started thinking behind my back. And it's hard to catch them. But you can. You can. You have to accuse them of it constantly. And you will, you will, uh, you'll get them eventually. And then on that page, right on page 66, you see, what it says is, is you're right and you're dead. You're right and you're dead. Because if you just didn't like this, you'd be fine. But unfortunately, you have a soul sickness that sets off a kind of thinking where all of a sudden it sinks below the horizon and you drink again. You go out for a pack of cigarettes. You wind up in Baltimore. You don't know how, which actually happened to me. And um, I have a strange mental twist. And as a result of the spiritual sickness, it gets set off and I take a drink. I cannot stop taking How can I get out of this cycle of spree and remorse? My problems pile up at a seemingly unsolvable rate. Silkworth describes it so gorgeously. They they pile up at a seemingly unsolvable rate. I have no way to encounter a power to help me out from under. The alcoholism is so efficient at producing anxiety and problems, the web becomes so impossible for me to solve on my own. Nothing can compete with it. The therapy can't compete with it. drug therapies can barely... uh, They can compete with it by making me unconscious. But uh, I can't encounter anything. And all we're talking about is some spiritual tools that will help me encounter a power greater than myself that will get me out of the cycle of spree and remorse. And the minute I did it, for the first time, I started the cycle of surrender and commitment. Where I made a little surrender. I got on my knees. I said a prayer with another man that was a little... That was a little surrender that made a little commitment possible. And then a little commitment made a bigger surrender possible. And a surrender made a big, as opposed to the cycle of spree and remorse, which is every spree created more guilt, all more remorse, and it became bigger. The Hell became bigger and bigger and more inclusive. And um, the cycle of surrender and commitment is just as powerful. And looking up and down with these glasses is giving me an acid flashback. I just want to let you know. So on page 66, it says, you're right, and you're dead. You're right, and you're dead because you experienced this in a way that ends your life. And then, in the second paragraph, it points out something that's really beautiful to me. It's planned that life that includes uh, deep resentment leads only to futility and happiness. We used to be be able to deal with the situations and use the situations, time that uh, could have been put to better use. You know, so kind of what they're talking about is, for every five minutes I spend in resentment, it's five minutes I've squandered, five minutes I could have been doing something else, fishing, who the hell knows, and five minutes I've cut myself from the sunlight of the spirit. So for every five minutes I spend in resentment, I'm wasting 15 minutes. And I want to tell you, I love that idea because it explains something huge to me. How many times have I been to AA meetings and have I heard people get up to podiums and say, I can't believe what I'm able to do in my life. I can't believe what I fit into a day. I used to be, I did nothing. I could have gotten a job as a parachute bag. I mean, I did nothing. Absolutely useless, you know. And I'm like, I can't believe what's fitting into my life. And I want to tell you that's true for me. And that really explains it to me. For every five minutes I spent, I burnt 15. My life was exhausting, man. Absolutely exhausting. And it's not anymore. It's really not. In page 66, in the middle of the first paragraph, it says, Sometimes it was remorse, then we restored ourselves. That's a resentment against myself. I know you don't have any, but I'm not as spiritually developed as you, and I've got a lot so that's why I ask myself that question: Do I have any resentments against myself in connection to this resentment? You know how a dentist will find a little pinprick and they'll open it up, and it'll be like a theme park in there. You know, the, the, the little, the little hole. There's a lot of, a lot of decay in there. I have found that with resentment, sometimes I'll write one, and it just the dominoes start falling. It'll open this little psychological theme park for me. You know. Um, so. So in those two paragraphs, in the middle of 66, it says you're right and you're dead. You experience this in a way that's killing you, that's wasting your time. Your life is evaporating. It's running out between your uh, fingers like a handful of water. And then it says on the bottom of 66, so we're going to have to turn back to the list for it, holds the key to our future. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real. And I want to tell you, if I only had real events on my inventory, it would have been a pretty short document. Because uh, I did a lot of mind reading. One of my defects of character is mind reading. As a group, we're the most pathetic group of mind readers I've ever met in my life. I mean, I, I, so many of my resentments are uh, are uh, uh, due to mind reading. Not good mind reading, but mind reading. And, um, I mean, I'm uh, not good at it. Um Fancy Darilla had the power to actually kill. We saw these resentments must be mastered. We how we could not wish them away any more than alcohol. You know, it's a funny thing. Wish them away any more than alcohol. Sometimes, to me, a prayer is a wish if it's not moored to uh, uh, to specific action. Sometimes my prayers, I'm trying to wish them away, and I need to do an inventory. I need to take an action to make it vital. Um, I, you know, some people pray for people who they're resentful at. Uh, it's mentioned in one of the stories of the big book, and I, I, I don't indict that at all. I know it works for a lot of people. It has never worked for me. My prayer usually winds up being, Pop, help this guy. Kill him. He, uh, he needs killing. It'll be good for him. <laughs> and we'll, it'll be good for everybody, I think. Um, my sponsor used to say, just stop the prayer in the middle, you know, um, So it's never worked for me. I I, I would try to will these things away, wish these things away. uh, 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 And I can't will them away just as I can't will away alcohol. And then on the top of 67 in the first paragraph, it says some pretty remarkable stuff. It says that this is a sick person. On On page 65, actually page 64, it says something very important in the last paragraph. It says, we've not only been mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. So if you're an alcoholic, you're spiritually sick. Okay? It's very clear about that. And on the top of 67, it says, if I'm resentful at someone who is spiritually sick. Now, how do I decide if I'm resentful at someone who's spiritually sick? My first sponsor gave me a really nice technique that I love to use. He said, Scott, odds are if they're one of the five A's. And I'm going to use a bad word, but I'm, and I apologize already. that I, He said, alcoholic, if they're one of the five A's. They're probably spiritually sick. Alcoholic, addict. Al-Anon, Al-a-teen, teenage version, or asshole. And uh, he said, if you can't get him into the first four, you know, there's always a seat in the fifth category. And um, uh, th- does that mean they are spiritually sick? I don't know. Fancy to real, it has the power to actually kill. But if someone is spiritually sick and I'm resentful at them, then one of my defects, it says on the top of 67, that I should be able to show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. Now, I want to tell you something. For me, the opposite of resentment is not always peace, love, and happiness. The opposite of resentment might be the absence of murder. I might just not kill that person, but it doesn't mean I have to like him. It says then on the following paragraph on 67, we cannot be helpful to all people, but we must at least take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. Now, my aunt held my arms to my side so I could be hit. She was an extremely abusive woman. Um, do I like her? No. Do I hang out with her? No. Do I spend time with her? No. Do I resent her? No. Absolutely not. Was the resentment my fault? Absolutely. Now, a reasonable person would have simply not liked her and never let her be alone with my children, right? But I spent 19 years of my life character assassinating the woman, doing whatever I could do to be uh, make her miserable. If you said, I like her, I'd go, no, you don't. And I'm going to tell you why. Um, <clears throat> so the other thing I love, on the top of 67, it, says, it doesn't say pray for the other person. It actually says pray for yourself. <clears throat> it says when a person offended, we said to ourselves, not to the other person and not to myself loud enough so that they can hear me. Just, just to myself. Just to myself. And I've had many people in Alcoholics Anonymous tell me that they were resentful at me. I don't know what book they're reading. I judge no man, but I never get it. I never get when somebody walks up to me and says, you know, I've been very resentful at you. I always try to interrupt and say, this is not good information for me. This is not information I should have. If you want to discuss the problem, that's fine. But the book says really clearly, this is not, God save me from being angry, that will be done, not mine. This is not information that's going to be helpful or useful to me. Um, So, in the third uh, paragraph, to me, the entire world turns on the third paragraph on page 67. It's the way out. It's my road to freedom. It's the, it's the arch uh, to which I will pass through. It's how am I possibly going to stop hating the Nazis? How am I possibly going to stop hating my aunt? How am I possibly going to stop hating myself for being loaded the night my old man died, for being a piece of crap as a father? You guys told me I wasn't bad getting good. You said I was sick getting well. Is that right? Yes. But I felt like a bad guy. And I'll tell you why. I acted like one just about all the time. So I I had to start, like, not acting that way in order to stop not feeling that way. You know, and sometimes I've heard people in say in AA say, I don't want to get well. Well, I, I do. And the big book of AA tells me I can. In the seventh chapter, it says, uh, wife or no wife, job or no w- job, tell a man he can get well if he starts depending on a higher power. I don't want to get cured, but I do want to get well. And there's tremendous wellness in Alcoholics Anonymous. Those are the guys who I hang out with. So... Uh, here it is. Here it is. Referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrong others had done, we resolutely looked for our own mistakes. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the, the other person involved entirely. Were we, where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. My world turns on this. Some people do a fourth column. Some people do a defective character list. Frankly, I couldn't possibly care less. You know, there's a lot of talk about the fourth column. Whatever you're doing to get closer to God, I I do a defective character list. Uh, And the reason why I like to do a separate one is when I go to God in 6 and 7, I'm going to take that list. I'm not taking the resentments. I'm asking God to remove the defects of character. So for every resentment I write... I write, number one, I'm resentful at Nazis for slaughtering Jews. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects of character in me that if God would remove, the resentment would be gone? When I originally wrote this on my fourth step, I had one defect of character. It was, I'm too much of a coward to kill them all. My sponsor took umbrage with this in his own very sweet, wonderful way. And we did some work on this, and my world turned. He said... The inventory is yours, not the other man. Okay? Now, it says on page 65, we write uh, uh, resentments against people, institutions, and principles. People I know. Institutions. The Nazi government is an institution. The government of South Africa is an institution. Homophobia is a principle. Racism is a principle. Anti-Semitism is a principle. Plenty of resentments there. Some people I, I, uh, I sponsored a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. And I sponsored him for a couple of years, and this guy wound up calling me up and saying, what should I bring to your son's bar mitzvah? Um, so, what is in me that God would remove the resentment would be gone? Anytime I hear a German accent, I hate the person. I don't even think about it. I'm a, I'm, I'm a bigot, and I'm a hypocrite. I'm an opportunist because I've used this to apply for self-pity and to be a little more special than other people. Opportunism, hypocrisy, bigotry. (laughs) Not what I counted on, not gallant. There's nothing gallant here. I don't write a little, read a little, write a little, read a little. I read the whole thing, so maybe I can be so crushed under the weight of it, so decimated, so deflated of ego at depth that I will actually be willing to try to stop treating my own alcoholism with a drink and trying to treat it with the program of action outlined in this book. An unbelievable thing. Unbelievable thing. It's a miracle. <laughs> self-pity. I want to tell you right now, you bottle self-pity, it, it'll not crack off the market in 15 minutes. It's a better drug. More available. When I get filled with self-pity, I get a little lump in my throat. My eyes get watery. I, I lean forward. It's good stuff. And, uh, and, you know, it's funny, the different forms of self. It's so, been so important and helpful for me to be specific uh, on my inventory. Selfishness, self-centeredness, and self-seeking are interesting. Selfishness is kind of wanting it all for me. Self-seeking is trying to figure out what's in it for me. And self-centered is figuring it's all about me. So they're the same, but they're a little different. And I like they got their own little English on the ball, you know? I like that. My family, uh, before I get into my family, um, it says in the book that if I could accept the fact that they were spiritually sick like me, I would show them tolerance, pity, and patience. So obviously one of my defects of character has to be I am unwilling to accept the fact that the Nazis are children of God who could be spiritually sick like me. I thought my hand would fall from my body. Now, does that mean, now, what is the opposite? I'm resentful at my aunt for holding my arms to my side so I could be hit as a child that affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects of character in me? Blue skies, God's got a magic wand, he comes and touches me on the head. What is it in me today? I'm a hypocrite. I've been abusive to my children. I treated my children like crap. Uh, I, I, I'm a character assassin. I'm a grudge holder. I'm self-righteous. You know, I'm wrong, but you're wronger. <laughs> <laughs> Unwilling to accept the fact that my aunt is a child of God who could be spiritually sick. I'm not living in today. You know? I'm a bully. <laughs> because if you tell me you like her, I'm going to try to bully you into not liking her. Was the, act, was the event my fault? Absolutely not. From my point of view, absolutely not. Was the resentment my fault? Every time, without exception, with no loopholes, every time. I'm resentful at myself for being uh, loaded the night my father died. It affects everything. What are the defects of character? Not living in today, grudge holder, guilt, shame, low self-esteem, irresponsible. Dishonest because I lied to everybody about it, didn't tell anybody about it. And you know what? There was some grandiosity there. I don't think I was able to write this at the time, but there was grandiosity there because I was the worst guy who ever lived, ever going to live, ever going to be on the planet. Nobody ever did what I did. And um, this was the key to my freedom, was to be able to start seeing this from a different point of view. And was I resentful at myself, any resentments against myself in connection with the resentment against my aunt? Yeah, I was resentful at myself for putting her down and spending 19 years of my life trying to poison whatever waters this woman was in. So I just, I really like that. I really like examining, do I have any resentments against myself in connection with this resentment? So I'm asked to write twice. On the first section of the inventory, I'm asked to write three columns of resentment and I'm asked to write a defect list. As a matter of fact, in the description of step five in the first page of chapter six, there's uh, an interesting rendering of the fifth step there. Uh, In the the, uh, bottom of the first paragraph, it says, uh, this requires action on our part, which when completed will mean that we have admitted to God, to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our defects. It doesn't say of our wrongs. And I just like that because I can't tell anybody the exact nature of my defects unless I list them. That was on page 72. Okie dokie. Now, on the bottom of page 67, uh, the very simple one-page section on the second section of the inventory begins, and it's about fear. I've heard a lot of wacky things about fear. I've heard things that make sense to me, and I've heard things that don't make sense to me. I've heard people say that you can't be in fear and faith at the same time. I have found this to be patently untrue and it is nowhere in the big book of AA. Quite often I'm terrified and I have a lot of faith that that'll end. Because I've seen it end time and time again. I've seen it demonstrated in the lives of the people around me and I've seen it in my own life. So a lot of times I'm frightened and I have faith that I'm not going to be frightened. So I have not found those things to be mutually exclusive each other at all, at all. Um, I've heard, uh, I'm sure you guys have heard interesting things done with the abbreviations for fear, and I'll do none of them today. <clears throat> One of the things I really love is uh, on the uh, top of 68, it, it, it talks about <clears throat> self-reliance failing us. It says we put our fears down thoroughly, and we put them down on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them. So here's an interesting thing. If there had been a PR guy working on the writing of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, in the middle of the description of step nine, it says that you will know freedom from fear of financial insecurity. Books written between 37 and 39, global financial collapse, bedlam, people jumping off skyscrapers, terror in the street, people selling apples in the street, absolute misery. If there had been a PR guy, i would go, don't tell them that promise them anything. Give them a Corvette, but don't promise them freedom from fear of financial insecurity. It doesn't make any sense. And they did it. They did it. They promised in those days the most unlikely thing you could possibly promise a human being, and they did it, and it paid off. And right now, we're in the middle of some unique, volcanic, catastrophic fear. And knowing that, but it means that I can continue to seek the way out and I can take action and I can do some stuff, which I'm going to talk about a little later on. It also says <clears throat> that I write down fears not in connection with personal resentment. That's what it says on the top of page 68. I, I take uh, fears not in connection with personal resentment. What does that mean? Now, on a, on a defective character list, I'm resentful at my boss for screaming at me. It affects everything with me. Probably, Maybe it doesn't affect sex. What are my defects of character? One of my defects on that resentment is fear of financial insecurity. This guy you know, has this sort of Damocles over my head. I'm self-seeking. I'm self-righteous. I'm grandiose. All this other stuff, right? But it asks me on the fear list to have to write fears not in connection with personal resentment. I am frightened of police, but I'm resentful at myself for knocking over liquor stores. So, there is definitely a resentment in connection with that fear. That's not a pure fear. Okay? I'm gonna write the resentments against myself for knocking over liquor stores, and maybe fear will get on, somehow get onto that, that defective character What are the pure fears that I experience, not in, in connection with personal resentment? I'm frightened of dying. I'm frightened of living. I'm frightened of AIDS. I'm frightened of anthrax. I'm frightened of being successful. I'm frightened of being a failure. I'm frightened of being alone. I'm frightened of being with people. Some life you could live, huh? I, uh, <laughs> I mean, really, if you take the interior of an initial fear list and take a look at it, a person can't live that way. You can't live in that landscape. The architecture of that kind of terror, it's impossible. It's like waking up and trying to walk through a wall of jello every day. There's just absolutely no way to do it. And it's very interesting to me if I stay honest about fears in connection with personal resentment, I'll start working on the fear list and it'll wind up feeding my my resentment list. And my resentment list will start feeding my fear list. It's really nice the way they play uh, off of you. It's sort of like scrubbing the list taking a look and seeing what's setting off personal resentment and what's not. The third section of the inventory is about sex. Um, I had to write about a lot of stuff uh, when I did my initial house cleaning. I was resentful of myself for uh, masturbating. Uh, There's nothing wrong with masturbating in my estimation. If you're masturbating until you're dehydrated, it might be a little problem. I had to try to get a a shape of sane and sound ideal for my future sex life and my future life. I love the sexual inventory so much because it's about the architecture of my life. In the second paragraph of page 69, the way I read it, I'm basically asked to write, you know, uh, I'm asked to write down who I've hurt, and I'm asked to write about seven basic points. Where have I been? Selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate, that's three. Where have I unjustifiably aroused jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness? That's six. And here's the magic one. It's To me, it's as powerful as what we read on page 67, that paragraph where the world turned. What should I have done instead? Not what could I have done. What could I have done at the time? I could have dismounted when I realized the person was dead. That's what I could have done. (laughs) That's what I was capable of doing. That's what I was capable of doing. Good, good news for the men I sponsor who are here today. Uh, um, what should I have done? I shouldn't have been in the neighborhood. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have done anything. Not what could I have done. What could I have done? What I did. That's what I could have done. What should I have done? That's something vastly different. That's a completely different enterprise. <clears throat> and it, and it's something very interesting on page 69. It then says, we wrote this, got this all down on paper which implies to me that it's not a list. We've pretty much been asked to write lists up to this point, more or less. This kind of implies that they'd like me to, to tell the story. Now, they don't care if the Chablis had a blush and it was a full moon. They just care that I write about how I did those seven things. Whereas I selfish, dishonest, and considerate? unjustifiably aroused jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness, what should I have done instead? In this way, I try to shape a sound ideal for my future life. It says future sex life, I say sex life, I say my life. This is the kind of guy I want to be. What an incredible thing. Uncover, discover, and apply. No doctor ever gave me a shot and said, here, here's a bunch of gimmicks and some vaccine, go shoot other people up. In my case, it would have been a particularly bad idea, but I was never asked to pass it on, and here I was told, that's all you got to do. If you've never heard uh, an AA speaker named Sybil Corwin I want to urge you, if it's possible, to get a hold of one of her tapes. Uh, She has, for me, the most powerful story of the 12th step. And uh, when I was uh, a newcomer in AA, it was the most appealing and compelling story that I heard. She was uh, the first woman to sober up in Alcoholics Anonymous in Southern California. And um, when she came in, she came in uh, as a result of uh, reading the Jack Anderson uh, article in the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, AALA which had one meeting. A guy tried to branch off and start another meeting and they said, we'll sue you. We're going to incorporate AA if you try to start another meeting. And this guy, who was Sybil's brother, said, that's like trying to incorporate the sunset, which I I just love that. Um, At any rate, uh, they had just gotten the written responses or some of the written responses to the big book of AA had come in uh, to New York from people in L.A. and At her first couple of meetings, in her first couple of weeks of sobriety, the guy who was in charge there handed her a bunch of letters and said, this is from all the women in this area who have responded to the big book. Go talk to them. But don't tell them anything because you don't know anything. So she started at the southernmost area down in, in in the South Bay and would go to a house, knock on the door. Are you Evelyn? Yes, I'm Evelyn. I'm from AA. Would you like to go to a meeting? And that's what, that was her first service in Alcoholics Anonymous. And what her, what her message is, and it's so gorgeous, is do it now. Do it right away. Just don't give away anything you don't have. If you've got a car and a quarter, give someone a ride and lend them a nickel. If that's all you got. And what you, what you don't have, give nothing. And what you do have, give as much as you possibly can. It's a tremendously, tremendously powerful thing. Um, Right before I I, uh, got sober, I had uh, left my wife and kids uh, for a woman. Um, I was working down in Texas, and this was a person I was working with down there. And uh, So who was at the top of the page? Who was harmed? I put the people who were harmed at the top of the page. My wife, my children, this woman was hurt. Uh, The people I was working with were injured, and this woman's family were injured. Where was I selfish? I write something about it. Well, I wanted this woman, I wanted my wife, I wanted everything. I wanted everything at the same time. I I didn't care about meeting certain deadlines at work because I was busy juggling all of this stuff. I write something about being selfish, selfish, dishonest. I lied to to myself about my intentions. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I lied to my employer about not being involved. And I I write something about it. This is not yes and no stuff. Where was I dishonest? I lied to Nancy, I lied to the woman, I, lie, I lied to my kids. And I talk about it. Selfish dishonest, inconsiderate. I was inconsiderate to the woman, I was inconsiderate to my, uh, uh, the people I was working with because they were embroiled in all of this craziness and gossip and insanity. Our product was deeply affected by the fact that this was going on. Selfish dishonest, inconsiderate. Unjustifiably aroused jealousy tremendous jealousy in my family, in her family, and jealousy at work because I was playing a favorite of her, creating jealousy in other people at work. And then, and this is something that was uh, revealed to me in the writing of it, which really shook me up, I became jealous of people who I felt were living normal lives. It was like I was peering out through this little window of alcoholism. That's what would happen to me. The worst thing that would happen to me is like days like Halloween, like days where people were were... Carrying on the business of life. You know, a number of years ago, I, I, was, I was driving to an AA function on Halloween to talk at this AA function, and I was, it was one of those moments, if you've been around here any appreciable amount of time, odds are you've had them, when you are overcome with the, with, you get it. You just get it. it doesn't. You don't, you're struck sometimes, you'll drop to a knee and say thank you. It's incredible. And this was one of those moments for me. I'm driving to this thing, and I'm seeing that wonderful scene. You know the scene. Kids running through the street with bags of candy in there. They're capes streaming behind them, you know, and leaves blowing, or it's L.A., so a leaf is blowing around, you know. <laughs> and, um, and I'm looking out through my windshield, and I was overcome. I just was almost knocked out by it. I felt part of it. I didn't feel like I was watching the thing. And I'll tell you why. Because for 16 years, I've spent a couple of bucks to have some candy in the house for the neighborhood kids when they come around. Because my sons, when they allowed me to buy costumes for them, they're costuming themselves these days, uh, um, I, I got them the costume they wanted. I exercised the Halloween muscle based on having a resentment against myself of being a piece of crap as a father and never doing the right thing. My sons have received 18, seven, 16 appropriate birthday gifts on the day of their birthday. Not once in 16 years have they received the day-after radioactive guilt gift from the only place that would take a hot check from me. Here's some drywall, boys. Uh, All the kids are loving drywall right now. It's Pokemon drywall. Um, I've exercised the, uh, the birthday muscle 16 times. I don't feel guilty on my kid's birthday. That's the kind of guy I want to be. Selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate, unjustifiably, or I was jealousy, suspicion. I was suspicious. I created suspicion in both camps. I created suspicion at work. I created suspicion in myself. I started doubting my own sanity. And I write about that. I told one person I'd be there for Christmas. I didn't go there. I went to another place. And I write a little something about it. And bitterness. Well, that's the whole shooting match, isn't it? I became embittered with my own life. I wanted her. I wanted her. Why can't I have them? My kids are starting to feel nuts. Uh, They're trying to get ready for school, things aren't in place, everybody's disorganized, and the alcoholism just starts eroding. It just starts eating away at you. You know, it's just like it's like standing on the beach and having the sand sucked out from underneath your feet over and over again. What should I have done instead? Now, it says, it says in the big book of AA that we will not be the arbiter of anybody's sexual behavior. On page 69, Bill has this little thing and I think he was addressing the, uh, the, the kind of the people who are still pretty much hardline Oxfordites in Akron. And he had another camp in New York. It's New York. He has a lot of deranged, wacko people who are, like, you know, into therapy and art and, you know, doing a lot of stuff. So, you know, they say have sex with everything. The Akronites say have sex have to have a kid. And he, he says we don't want to be the arbiter of anybody's sexual behavior. And still, you know, we see that go on in Alcoholics Anonymous. My home group is a a men's stag where uh, where we've successfully created an atmosphere that gay and straight men are uh, attending a meeting together and really committed to one another. And one of the reasons that we've been successful at it is I, uh, sponsoring a a great deal of gay men who could not attend the meetings I was going to, uh, especially one which was kind of my home group, because remarks were being made from the podium in an offhanded way that were so injurious that it just it, it, it was almost impossible to feel part of. And it was made in a totally offhanded way. If these had been racial remarks or anti-Semitic remarks, they wouldn't have been tolerated for one minute. So we made a choice, which was the culture of our meeting and the tradition of our meeting, every meeting has a tradition, that we wouldn't tolerate it. That if a guy did it, we would make it very clear to him in as kind and loving way as possible that he should never come back to the meeting again. Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> but we would make it very, very clear that this, was the tr- this is not appropriate behavior for our meeting. Nothing wrong with it. Um, we don't want to be the arbiter of anybody's behavior. And, uh, and I, I want to tell you, it's really been a remarkable thing to be uh, part of that fellowship. It's been an incredibly powerful, powerful thing uh, for me. Um, what should I have done instead? Some people might take a look at what I, do- I had done and approach it like the uh, maybe the original acronites would have said, well, that's bad, that's adultery, that's one of the Ten Commandments. You should clearly have not done that. Uh, you should be having missionary-style sex with one person until <laughs> you die. And um, so that would be their take on it. This was my take on it. My take on it was, Not that I never should have been there. Not that I ever should have done it. My take on it was I either should have committed to my marriage or committed. People get divorced or committed to the other woman in the other relationship, but I never should have done both at the same time. I never should have lied. I should have been an honest. I should have had open and honest conversations. I should have told the truth, and I shouldn't have done both at the same time. That's the kind of man I want to be. That's the kind of communication I want to have. Now, for another person, that might be a totally inappropriate thing to write, you know, on either end of the scale. But this is about me finding a higher power that's going to break my cycle of spree and remorse, not you, not yours, you know. So uh, I did that sexual inventory. And I, uh, thank God, didn't have to write about masturbation because I had not become dehydrated. And I... so there are the uh, the three sections of the inventory. I'm asked to write th- four times: twice on resentments, once on fears, and once on sex. Um, I went and did step five to my sponsor. With my sponsor, for some bizarre reason, believe me, I don't know where I got this idea. I thought that I was going to take my inventory over to his house and drop it off, and he was going to read it and then comment on it. And i got to tell you something, I really I do not know where I came up with this idea. I've heard uh, the longest fifth step I've ever heard uh, was 22 hours, and the shortest fifth step I've ever heard was 15 minutes. They're both drunk, okay? And the reason why is that they didn't do anything after that. I, I personally could care less how long or short a person's inventory is. Sometimes guys ask me, how long should it be and how long should it take me? Well, right near uh, uh, the end of of, uh, our our book on page 70, it says uh, uh, if you've been thorough, you've written down a lot. I have no idea what a lot is for you. I mean, what's a lot for you ain't a lot for me and vice versa. How long should it take you? Well, as long as it takes to write down a lot, I guess. I I don't know how long it would take you to write down a lot. So I really like that. I've sponsored guys who have been working on their inventories for six years. The suffering is unbelievable. It's like it's like watching Exodus every time I talk to them. I mean, it's just like unbelievable, the agony. It's not my inventory. It's theirs. Um, and then I've, uh, I sponsor guys who have done it in a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Uh, I took three months to do it with mine. I have no idea what the right thing is for, uh, for other guys and other gals. So uh, I went and I... Uh, my sponsor told me I'd have to read it and my heart fell because I had written like 225 resentments. I mean, I had written down a really tremendous amount and I did not want to have to read this thing. And I had to, I read it. I read my fear list. I read my sexual inventory. And then he took me into um, the step, uh, which is besides one and two, there's less written on uh, uh, six and seven uh, than any two steps in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's said that they separate the boys from the men, the girls from the women, the raisins from the grapes. There's a lot of separating going on there. And uh, 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 when we come back after lunch, I'm going to get into 6 and 7, I'm going to go into 10, and I'm going to talk about how I've used, uh, how 10 has presented itself to me in a way that is really continuing to change my life in a profound way. Um, Before we break, uh, uh, for all of those who are bored, uh, I want to tell you my favorite story about being bored in Alcoholics Anonymous, and then we'll break for lunch. Um, uh, many years ago, there's a guy in my home group, this guy Jeff D., and he was brand new, and he was, uh, he was shifting around his seat in a, at a meeting, and his sponsor said to him, what's the matter? And Jeff said, I'm bored. And his sponsor said, well, you, you know why you're bored. Jeff said, no. His sponsor said, you're bored because you're boring. That's why you're bored. And it it freaked him out. It was like an acid moment. He went, wow, wow. It blew him away. And he thought, what a great thing to say to a newcomer. You know, it really worked. So he could hardly wait till a newcomer told him that they were born. Thirteen years later, no newcomer has told him that they're born. He's at a meeting with a young lady at my old home group, the North Hollywood group in LA. And there's a young lady there, she's new, and she's shifting around in her seat. And Jeff says, what's the matter? She says, I'm bored. (laughs) He says, well, you know why you're bored. She said, yeah, because I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everybody stand for a second, hold hands, let's say the serenity prayer, and we'll hit the trough.